0: it uh, been a long time since I've spoke here, and uh, back. <laughs> thank you. You need to say that after we're done. <laughs> we're going to be in Romans, and you can make your way there. <clears throat> While uh, having time to travel and uh, take a pause from uh, speaking here, and obviously uh, kind of doing my thing there and speaking and uh, taking part in just the Sri Lankan trip and uh, just all the travel. I had some downtime and just uh, opportunities to go through the Word and prepare myself for uh, this next uh, uh, wave, and I've been asking God to just direct my heart about what to uh, share. A number of things happening, and so I've, I'm eventually going to work my way to Romans 14, but uh that's uh, going to be tough for me to start there without some prep, so we're going to uh, do some prep first, some uh, survey through the book of Romans to prepare our minds for what Paul's saying. I will say this, that in uh, Romans 12 through the end of the book is kind of a division. Uh, Romans 1 through 11 is more of a uh, uh, just a full uh, unveiling and exploration and explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What that means, and so on. And then uh, when he gets to 12, chapter 12, and on, it's more of a break to uh, let's talk about practical ways we implement the gospel of Christ. Uh, And that's where I want to go. I'm going to read verse 1 of chapter 14 uh, to show you where I'm heading. And then everything we're going to say, even leading up to it, is all pointed toward what he wants to say to the church in Romans 14. He says, "Uh, Receive one who is weak in the faith but not to disputes over doubtful things. That's where I'm going. Uh, So if you're uh, someone who's new in Alpine even today, uh, if you're a new believer in Christ, uh, there are certainly issues that you stumble into as you go from church to church. Sometimes those issues that we walk into are what we're going to call, as Paul has labeled here, uh, things that can be uh, disputable or doubtful, uh, what we might call gray areas, uh, how we live our life, and all of us have unique qualities about us that we are completely different from one another. My my background, your background, your cultural uh, context to mine, and we uh, come into the faith in Christ and we bring all that with us, and then, therefore, there becomes this uh, expectation as to how I translate the gospel for me and how you translate it for you. And we try to find a church that sort of fits us, but then we realize that it's never just this perfect fit. We're all happy all the time and all just uh, perfectly linked together without any differences, any unique qualities about us that make us unique. And uh, that's not what Christianity is supposed to be in the first place. I mean, the Lord knows we're all different. And he knows we're all from different places. So uh, the issue is going to be how do we take all of us who are uniquely different and cause us to be unified? That, that's, that's the goal and objective here. And sometimes it's not big things that disunify us. It's more often the smaller things that we get a focus on that we, we sort of get hung up on. Uh, I, always, uh, I was telling the guys the other day, we were out, and I just said, uh, you know, what really gets to me uh, are not the big things. I, if, if somebody comes in and says, uh, this tragedy's happened to me, uh, I'm with you, I'm listening, I'm analyzing, I'm praying. Uh, if, if something goes crazy in my own personal life, and it's a big event, uh, let's just say that my house blew up tomorrow, uh, I, I honestly think I'll get through that. It's the little things that drive me crazy. I don't know who, who's like that, like me, but it's the minutiae that drives me crazy. If my desk is messed up and I can't find something, I go nuts. If I can't find my keys, because I'm a, I'm one of those people that always has the perfect place for everything I hang up and put down. So if I, like my glasses are the worst. If I take my glasses off talking to you and I forget where I put them, I'll never find them again. I've told you that. It drives me crazy. I can have a heart attack over trying to find my glasses. But if it's something big and serious, it seems like God's designed me to to work through that and trust his word and go for it, but it's those other things. So uh, we can get our eyes on all the wrong things that can cause great struggle and tribulation in the church. And that's, that's just, the, so Paul's wants to, Paul wants to deal with that. But before we can really analyze that, we've got to go back and, and process. So back up, if you would, just two chapters to chapter 12. Let me start at verse 1 of chapter 12, which then again, we can't even stay there. We have to do something else. But let me start with chapter 12, which is going to lead us to somewhere else. Uh, Paul, uh, in this transition from presenting the gospel to now going to the practical application, he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And now he's going to present a, a list of what I call governing precepts that guide us in our Christian life. That's where we're going to go uh, yet, which leads us into chapter 14. But before I can do that, I've got to take a look at what he's saying here. I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. So uh, the therefore, obviously, he's talking about something preceding all this context. And he's saying, by the mercies of God. And I want to go back, and I want to just reflect for a while uh, through a survey. So go back to chapter 1 of Romans. I want to do a brief survey of the mercies of God. And uh, help us to uh, mentally understand and spiritually grasp that phrase that we often pull out of context, which is Romans 12:1 and 2. We have to I want to put it in context this morning, and just uh, breeze through for just a moment here, just some amazing things that we all know but we need to review in Romans chapter one. And let me, uh, let me jump through these very quickly. So, uh, you know, Paul in Romans 1, obviously, once he finishes his introductions, he wants to, uh, talk to the Romans about the gospel. Uh, he he uh, makes mention of the fact that uh, as he came, uh, uh, he says in verse 14, I, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, to wise, to the, to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you uh, in Rome also. So here I come with the gospel. And he immediately says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. A- and there's this uh, understanding culturally that Rome was this sophisticated modern city, the culture of, of uh, humanity, uh, hu- humanism to its nth degree uh, from uh, the creative genius of, of uh, construction to uh, art and, and, uh, and music and all, the, uh, all those dramatic things that are in the culture to uh, you know play modern plays and all that they adapted from the Greek culture. And so they, they have this culture and obviously it's, it's one that lifts up the abilities and the skills and the uh, uh, amazing capacities of, of humankind uh, in this culture and obviously at the very prime point point of that is one called Caesar, who uh, is the one who sort of takes the glory for all of that. And that's the culture he's stepping into. Christianity was looked down on by the Romans as weak, uh, anemic. Uh, it, it was it was a, obviously a, a faith that was humble and and brought people under the lordship of Christ. And and the one that the, who is their their savior, their their king, is the one who died on a cross. So Rome sees this as weak and anemic and incapable of of having any kind of real impact. Paul comes into that culture saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I think believers were sort of quiet and and, uh, careful and, uh, you know, kind of lived under the radar of this culture they lived in. He says, because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes— for in, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. From every person who finds Christ, the righteousness is revealed story after story after stories. When we went to Sri Lanka, the, the stories of the amazing changes in people's lives because of the gospel, it just kept amazing us. But that's what the gospel does. Some of you who have had your life changed, it's... It's it's just wonderful to hear your story again and remind ourselves what God's done in your life. And that that itself is an amazing thing. But sometimes we downplay our own story. Paul's just saying, don't be ashamed of the gospel. In, in the culture we live in, again, we have that same kind of thing. We live in a culture that's more and more humanistic, more and more uh, lifting the, the abilities of man and demeaning those who follow a Christ who died on a cross. And I want to remind ourselves that when we talk about the mercies of God in verse 1 in chapter 12, the first mercy he has is reminding us it's his power that does this work, not ours. And that mercy as we see it, uh, and it comes into our life. Notice uh, he uh, then talks about those who, who actually knew but rejected him in the next section, verse 18 and on to the end of the chapter. He's, he's reminding uh, all of us uh, that the, those, those who have uh, the, the capacity to see the invisible qualities of, 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 of God, they, they see his power as they just look around them. They're without excuse, verse twenty. Because they they knew God, but they just did not glorify him and weren't thankful. So he goes on the whole text of just revealing the fact of the heart of man that men and women really do know if they really want to. If you really want to just go on pause and look at your life and look around you, you have enough evidence to say there is a God. But there's that tendency to, again, stay in the human mindset. Chapter 2, he comes along and reminds us about his judgment. God's judgment is coming and God's judgment is fair. And it's based on the fact of what he's shown us and what we have rejected. So he he tells us in this verse 2, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Uh, and then he says in verse five, "But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God." There, there's a day coming, and and you're just if you're not following God and you're living in your own strength and you refuse to even think about God, then you're just stacking up uh, uh, all the evidence that will stand against you once God judges, and He is going to do that. But the fact that God's revealed that to us is God's mercy. And he, and he reminds us of that, and it's this wonderful truth, so that we, as we work through this this whole thing of, of uh, sensing that God's righteousness is calling all of us to a righteous life and to respond to that, he says in verse 21, you therefore who teach uh, another, uh, do you t- not teach yourself? Uh, who, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? And he just reminds us that no one here has their act together, even if we follow laws that we've invented for ourselves, whether it's God's law or ours. He says in verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, talking to the Jews of their inexcusable position. Then he says in chapter 3, uh, here's the deal, God says to all of us. In verse uh, 9, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. When I, when I first read this and reminded myself of this, when I was very young. Reading this phrase, I, I thought to myself, okay, there it is. God is God by Himself alone, and He's saying that no human being is really looking for Him. And I I asked myself, is that me? And it, it was part of the process of drawing me to Him. There, there is none who does good, no, not one. I knew that was me. I'm a sinner. He, he's, he's putting us all in that position. In verse 19, so that he can say that, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Uh, for all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 23. So God, in his mercy, in his, in his wonderful mercy, is revealing to us that without, without him, of course, we're absolutely lost and hopeless. Then he comes into chapter 4 and says there was a guy named Abraham uh, Abraham believed God, in verse 3, it says, and, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham just believed God. Now to him who works, the wages of, are not counted as grace, but as a debt. You, you can't work your way into favor with God, he says. But verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes in on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So it's by faith he starts this process of explaining. God's reveal that it must be by faith that we come to him. The whole world, even in Sri Lanka, the whole world is trying to earn the favor of the gods, trying to earn blessing from some deity, some force, trying to do something to please something else, to, to see and to hear. Uh, I was moved and stirred by, a, on this one day, uh, on a Sunday, there was a fellow who uh, family brought him to church, both of, his, both of his kidneys had stopped, completely stopped. He had no hope. He was, he was dying. He, he was brought to church that day, and he came forward and gave his life to Christ. In the uh, process, many uh, young people, 20, 20 21, 22, 23-year-olds were around him praying for him. I was very impressed by that. And as they prayed for him, uh, this fellow responded, received Christ, and was uh, smiling the joy of salvation on his life, even though he knew he was dying. Uh, There's just something about the fact that once we realize that we can't earn this, uh, we can't ever hear from gods out there as we try to buy them off, but there's a God out there who loves us so much, it's all by grace, that's his mercy poured on us. Nothing we can do can earn that. Verse five, or chapter five, look at what Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith in this one called Jesus. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Is that you this morning? Do you rejoice in that? That's by his mercy. When Paul talks about mercies, this is what he's talking about. This whole entire story of mercy to us. God tells us about himself in his mercy uh, when we get down to uh, 6, 7, and 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would would anyone die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's God's mercy that's been poured out on us. I I, I could never earn that. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from... Wrath through him. Then he explains to us that this gift came by one man. One man that was lost, one man brought the gift back. That whole explanation is, again, God's mercy, showing that he sent someone as a gift uh, when we completely did not deserve it. Uh, Verse 17 of 5, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through one, Much more, uh, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Wow. Talk about mercy. Chapter 6, God reveals to us that Verse 4, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He didn't just die for us, he rose from us, and he calls us to this relationship with him where he who died for us is willing to allow us to come and place ourselves in him. His death was for me, his death was for you, and he he did that. So we we come to him realizing that I died, but I died in Christ. As, as Nick just finished that series, I died in him. And because of that, I also am raised in him, and I have this blessing. That's all from his mercy, which we don't deserve. Once he goes through all that, he comes to chapter 7. We have this complete... quandary of the flesh against the spirit in this battle so in verses 13 through 25 he talks about this struggle that we have and in god's mercy he actually allows us in his word to know that he knows my struggle he knows in his mercy that i have a problem even though i've given my life to him he says to us in verse 19 for the good that i will to do i do not do but the evil i will not to do that i practice Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law in my mind. Can anybody relate to this? In God's mercy, he He wants us to know that he's offered salvation to us, we can't earn it. So he's given us, he's pursued us and offered us freely his, his death and burial and resurrection to bring us into him and give us life. But he understands, even after I've made the decision to follow him, I have an ongoing struggle, this battle of my flesh against the spirit. And in his mercy, he says, I know, I know, I know. But then Paul says at the end, but I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord, so that uh, with the mind I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh the law of sin. I, I, I am sort of uh, dealing with this but I have the gratitude of the Savior who died for me and who has knowledge of this and, and that itself ought to just throw us on our knees every day. Don't you think? I don't have the capacity to really do a good thing tomorrow. But in the, in the grace of him knowing that God's blessing to me and his grace and his mercy, I, I trust him that he's in my life. Well, sometimes when I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing, I, I, I got to come back and say, but Lord, you've called me to yourself. And so there's that question of doubt. So chapter eight was written for that very reason. Verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I've had so many people over the years say, I don't know if I'm saved or not. And then they go through their story and it's always some sin they've fallen into, some heartache that has drawn them to make bad decisions. And they get in those positions and then they they doubt their faith. Maybe someone here this morning, you're doubting your faith uh, in Christ because you know how you have mishandled, mismanaged your your walk with Christ. You're not walking with him right now. And in your mind and in your heart, you're saying, when I read all the all the promises from him and all the ways that he loves me and what he's done for me and how he wants me to follow him and take up my cross and follow him, and then all these other issues are popping in your mind of things you've done to fail him, and you say, I don't, th- I don't know how I could be a Christian. So he uh, calls out to us in this text, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Now, he goes on to say, those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, for the law of the spirit is life in Christ, and has made us free from the law of sin and death. I'm I'm set free from the condemnation of the law in my position in Christ. I didn't do that. He did. I got to remind myself, I didn't earn that position. He did that for me. That's his mercy. His mercy. The the word here is is just washed in mercy. And if we understand that, Well, there's still questions in our minds. And so he says in verse nine, but uh, you are are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, now, are you saved or not? That's what he's saying. Now, if indeed, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Well, then that sets off a whole question. Is he in my life or not? In fact, he ends that thought in verse 11, But if the spirit of him who has raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give to, give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's great. That's great. But then he goes on and says, Therefore, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. Now, as soon as you read that, you're going to say, yes, that's right. It's not the flesh. It's not what I can do to perform to please God. That does not get me uh, free from condemnation. If I ever put my trust in my performance before God, I'm in trouble. And so he's, he's just saying to us here, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you think that your performance is the way to earn favor with God, you're uh, on the road to death. When you understand this, it just strengthens your faith when he says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. How do I know if I'm led by him? Well, later on, Paul talks down at the, in the next half of the chapter about the fact of what the Holy Spirit does for me when I'm not able to pray in a right way. Uh, he actually sends prayers up for me. Uh, notice uh, uh Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. Not only that, but we also uh, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we even ourselves groan within us, eagerly waiting for redemption. And so he's just saying the Spirit does this work in us, for we were saved in this hope. Uh, and so uh, thank you for that. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I, I, I know that sometimes I, I sometimes don't even know how to pray, but there's this reassurance back in the uh, text in 12 through 17. He's just reminding us, look, if you're led by the Spirit, and then I go down and say, okay, when I'm praying, uh, sometimes I, my prayers bounce off the wall. So am I led by the Spirit or not? And he's, this whole text is written to us to say, you've got to go back and remind yourself, it's not by your performance, it's by your faith. So, Byron, you know, understand this. Uh, I am led by the Spirit, not by that I can say I, I know definitely I am. I know I'm led by the Spirit. But he says, here's the deal. It's by faith. You do not receive the spirit of bondage, but you receive the spirit of adoption. Uh, he adopted you, and I, I think I, uh, if I was an adopted child, and maybe some of you are, you're adopted into a family, you're, I've met many adopted people who sometimes go through life wondering if they're really loved, if they're really loved to the same degree that if that parent had a natural child, would they be loved as much? I've counseled with uh, people who felt like they were not loved as much as a natural child. And, and here's God saying to us, all of us are not natural children. But we're all adopted. And he's saying, I've given my life to prove I love you. Uh, You call in my name and I'll save you. You believe in me and who I am and what I've done. You are saved. There's no question about that. And so the Spirit of God comes in your life, obviously. But by faith, you have to believe that. To the point where he says, and this is where I've always struggled, to the point where he says, the Holy Spirit in your life It's reminding us that we're adopted, that we can say Abba Father, and it's just if you're a child, then you're an heir, an heir of God, and you've heard me say this, and it's true, and joint heirs with Christ, that's where I get hung up. I'm a joint heir with Christ? Yes. That's what God's saying to us. And this is all by His mercy, and it's all... We respond to his mercy with faith as we see who he is and what he's done for us. How can we not respond to him in faith from his mercy poured over us? We don't deserve this. Then the Spirit comes in our life and is working in our lives and prays on our behalf and we can't pray in a right way. And then we're reminded in chapter in verse 28, we're reminded that God does everything for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You have that sense. where We cannot be disconnected from God. All these assurances, uh, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can do that, he says. Verse 38, I'm persuaded, so can you come out of this and say, I am absolutely persuaded today that by his mercy, what he's done for me, he has saved me, he has changed me, he lives in my life, uh, the Holy Spirit is living in me, uh, he's, he's the one who leads me, though sometimes I tend to go my own way, I, get, I have this problem, this battle in my flesh, but, but somehow in, in the end result, I know that I know that I know I'm not condemned by God by the things I still tend to sometimes do in my weakness. Are you not glad about that? Then you come to chapter 9, and Paul breathes out this uh, huge, passionate statement about his feelings for the nation of Israel. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart that I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites. He uh, reminds us in all the mercies of God sent my direction, and as I read what Paul's saying from his heart, it reminds me of what I sometimes do not do, and that is to have a passionate concern for those around me that don't know Christ. If Paul can say, by the mercies of God, what he's done in my life, his gracious mercies, what I know, what I've experienced, who I am, my forgiveness, my state of being in Christ, all of that, how does that reflect itself in how I care about those around me who do not have that? And, and, and as Paul says, I, 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 would, I would trade off, I would give off, I would, I would surrender my, my state in Christ if it meant that somehow my fellow uh, Jewish friends would, would know Christ It's a very passionate statement in chapter 9. He works through that, that issue and he reminds himself that there's been a reason why that's happened. So down in verse 18 of chapter 9, we read this. Therefore, talking about God, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. You, you you will say to me, that, Well, why does he still find fault? Why would he judge someone, in other words, if they don't respond to for, him? For who has resisted his will? If God wills to make someone's hard heart hard, in other words, well, how can I explain that? But he says, Indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. It's a tough text. It's reminding me that in God's mercy, God's mercy, it flows where God chooses to cause his mercy to flow. I don't understand that. And if I start debating with God about that, I got to remind myself, wait a minute. His mercy, has it not been poured on me? Has his mercy been poured on you or not? And those of you who are saying amen, you've experienced his mercy. How dare I then say, well, God, okay, those three people over there, why aren't they experiencing this? Uh, Instead of doing that, of course, he calls us to pray, even as Moses interceded for God's people and said, Lord, please don't destroy them, save them. And we have the privilege of doing that in the name of Jesus Christ. But I don't have any ability or capacity to debate with God about his mercy and who it goes to and who it does not. But I read this and say, instead of debating with God or getting mad at God, I should fall on my knees before him. Because God in his mercy chose to have that mercy flow to you. And none of us deserves that. Thank you, Lord. None of us deserves that. Chapter 10. He says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You can't make up your own religion. You can't make up your own rules, your own laws, and think that somehow at the end of life, That uh, you will not give an account for not listening to the voice of God, the the witness of God around you, and calling on the name of Jesus. There's no excuse for that. Paul's just understanding that. And then he reminds all of us, as he reminds his fellow uh, uh, Roman citizens, as he writes to them, he just says, uh, Here's the deal. The the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, verse 6. Then he works down through it. and he comes to uh, verse 9 and says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes in a righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then shall they call on him, the question is, in whom they've not believed? How can my neighbor call on Jesus if they don't know Uh, how to find that faith. You know, uh, how does that take place? And he says, "Well, uh, how shall they preach without, unless they are sent? And how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel?" And so, obviously, there's that uh, sense to us that as God has called us to Himself in His mercy, and He opens our eyes to those who are around us, and and our heart hopefully expands to those who are around us. And we say to ourselves, "It's so simple. It's so simple. If I can just grasp, if I can help my neighbor or my friends or or uh, uh, you know those at school or in, or the." workplace, wherever they are, if I could just help them understand this, that if you just confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, these were, by the way, the words that were said when I prayed with the fellow who came to church on that last Sunday, as I prayed with him when he came forward, that that there has to be this, you have to confess with your mouth the Lord. You have to confess with, you have to say out loud, you are Lord, You, uh, you are God, you are Lord. It must come from the heart that you say that. And then you must believe in your heart that he's the one, God raised him from the, from the dead. He, this is all true and you call on him as your savior. Paul uh, wants his people so much to understand the simplicity of the gospel this is all you need to do just you've got to believe this though and you've got to call on him in, in desperate faith that says I want him in my life then he comes to chapter 11 and he uh, just says uh, okay has God cast away his people is this, is there no hope for them and and so he he tells himself no absolutely not that's not true there is there is hope And he walks through all of that and brings us uh, all the way through that story about uh, the whole uh, issue of Gentiles coming into Christ versus Jews. You and I are, by the way, the recipients of his mercy as he's God turned his attention toward us to be a testimony back to Jewish people and and those who uh, he once revealed himself to. Uh, Even in our own world, he's called us to himself and we're to be a light to all people around us. And he kind of walks through all of that. And then he just tells him in verse 25, For I do not desire, brothers, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God's going to finish what he's doing with Gentiles. Uh, That means that Alpine Bible Church has uh, a time frame. Uh, here we are this long after the fact, and God's still pouring his mercy out on people. And uh, some of you have been the recipients of that in just the last few years. You're here by grace and mercy. But that's coming to an end. It is coming to an end. he's telling us in the text that until this finally finishes itself out, and then, and then he says in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. So he's going to turn his attention back on Israel, I believe, in the last days, but he wants to finish the course with us first. Well, I don't understand all that, and neither do you. But in verse 33, neither does Paul. And so he says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. what else can you say? The glory be to the one who I cannot understand, but yet I do understand this. I was once a sinner, but now I'm saved by his mercy and by his grace. So that Paul then comes to chapter 12, and now he can turn his attention to what we need to do as we follow him. And he says, I urge you, therefore, in light of, by the mercies of God, by all that you've just heard. And he goes through this list of qualities, this list that we need to have in our life of governing precepts that can affect our lives and certainly uh, it, it will help us to understand this is how I'm going to please the Lord in my life once I understand his mercy and what it means to me and I have this gospel in my life. And so if you don't know Christ, this is a list of how Christians are supposed to live. And if you want to know if Jesus is real, all you, ha- all you can do besides his own word that powerfully can do its own work in your life Is that you are to look at believers and say, is is the gospel of Jesus Christ legitimized in the witnesses that I see who represent him? And and so here we go. So here's what he says. So I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you, first of all, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And we all know this, we've heard this a hundred times. But you know that verse that Paul wrote to the Corinthians because they had a problem with this. And so Paul said to them in 1 Corinthians 6, I'll just read it to you. You can mark it down, 19 to 20. He said this to them in the form of a question. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's rhetorical. They all know. He has to remind them. And you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Uh, Contrary to the thinking of the world that we live in today, your body and my body are not mine to do with as I please. But we live in a culture that is saying the exact opposite. I can do what I want with my body. It's my body. It's it's my being. I'll make decisions on my own. I don't need the government telling me what I can or cannot do. I don't need anybody any Christian telling me what I can or cannot do. And I will do what I want to do and it's my body to do with as I please. You and I both know and I know that there's this struggle. We read about it in Romans 7. There's this struggle that goes on for control in my life, control for my spirit, control for my flesh. This battle continues. And so Paul wrote this because we need to be able to understand that this verse is a daily experience. It might even be more than one day. I, I come to the Lord and I offer my body to Him as His property, under His control. I, I do this because I want to honor Him with who I am and what I'm supposed to be. And it's all because of his amazing grace and his mercy on my life. And so I come to him and I I then want to obviously surrender and submit my being to him. When I, The word body here, our bodies, we have this idea it's strictly physical. No, this is your whole being. I come to him and I say, Lord, I give you my being, my, my body, my soul, my spirit. I I come to you and I I want to die to self. I want to be a living sacrifice. Psalm 116, or psalm 116, verse 15, there was that little phrase in that psalm that I've always hung on to, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And I've always said, yeah, God is certainly pleased with a martyr. If you die for Jesus tomorrow, he'll be very pleased with you that you died in his name. But I think even more so for those of us at a New Testament church, the thing that brings the most pleasure to God is when we die daily to ourselves. That is precious in his sight because we're declaring in that decision that he is all Lord and all God and we're just who we are. Only by grace and mercy are we here. It's all because of him and when I exalt him in that way, that's the greatest honor I can give to him. And So Paul is just saying the primary, first reasonable thing that a believer does is every day give your life in a consecrated form to him and he, this is yours, Lord. You are Lord. This is yours. And I know when I leave the house and I haven't done that, I've already determined this is me. This is mine. The day is mine. The decisions are mine. I think sometimes God leaves me alone in that. So I'll discover how quickly I need him. That happens. Number two is in verse two. We all know this one. And do not be conformed to this world. Do not be shaped by this world. This world around us, we have to be so careful. I have to be careful. How I relate to the surrounding world that I live in. John warned us in 1 John 2, 15. He warned us. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I, I, I listen to that, and I want to remind myself, to enjoy things in the world is not necessarily loving them. You have to find the fine line here. I, I enjoy many things, but the word love, as we understand the word love in this text, is talking about the kind of love that you embrace something that you do not want to let go of. You're you're holding on to something like a, your hands are a vice around something that you just don't want to lose in this following Jesus. I still want to drag this along with me. I I don't mind following Jesus, but I still like to do this. I still want this relationship. I still want that item. I still want to experience that one thing I haven't experienced yet. And so as we go following Jesus, we're clutching on to things, dragging them along with us as we try to carry across. It's impossible to do all that. I go to the airport and, uh, you know, Mandy had her suitcase and you want to be a man. You want to you want to know pull hers too she's my daughter i mean you know i was supposed to pull her like give me your luggage and so she's like oh no give it to me i can do it uh no give it to me i'm the man you know so i'm, you know, I'm dragging the luggage and i'm wishing all along wish well, she'd carry her own luggage you know <laughs> you know as you're traipsing through when you're families, and of course, James always tells a story, which I laugh my head off every time James tells it, because they have a large family, and so, you know, uh, many times he's been caught trying to carry the baggage of all the family, plus, you know, the and get to where he has to go, and it's always funny to hear those stories. But obviously, it's not funny when we're, when we're discovering that I, if I were to just be honest with God at certain times, I got to say, Lord, I had to put your cross down. I had to put it down. I, I have too much stuff. I'm, I, I've got too much stuff on my hands. I, I can't do it all. And, and that's where we find ourselves struggling. And as Paul writes this, he's just saying this world, this this struggle we have, this conformity, this you know, be uh, being a part of something and clutching onto things. It's such a dangerous place for Christians, and we oftentimes struggle there. Prime example in the Old Testament, as you know, uh, was when the uh, God's angel came in to destroy Sodom. And the warning was don't look back, flee. You haven't got time, just go. And as Lot's wife was fleeing, the Word of God says she turned and she looked. Well, it's not because she just wanted to see how bad the bomb was or whatever happened, whatever God did. I want to see the uh, explosion, how how, how devastating it was. She's not looking for anything. She was looking because she was longing for what she was leaving behind. And maybe that's in some ways sort of natural. I mean, there was family left behind. There were, uh, you know, friends left behind and acquaintances and, and the stuff in her life. They were not poor, by the way. So she, who knows what she was looking back on, but whatever it was, God looked in her heart and said, she really isn't listening to me. She wants what she wants and I'm destroying what she wants because it's not right and it's not good. Demas, who was following the apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, Paul says, Demas abandoned me. He left me because he loved this world. This is someone who was with, with Paul through many of his ventures, who, who knew the truth of God, who uh, proclaimed Christ as Lord and Savior, but he abandoned the work. He abandoned the ministry because the world was so much more alluring to him. So you know what, this morning, if you're fighting to hold on to something, if you're just really uh, gripping on to something right now and you just feel like, I know in my heart of hearts, this is not the right thing for me to have. But I'm going to follow you, Lord, but this is tough. And so we might take one hand off and we're trying to follow carrying that cross, but we're still, we still got in our clutch something else we're not supposed to do. You know, there are many areas of our life that we could talk about, and obviously when we get to Romans 14, there's going to be things we're going to be specifically talking about, but th- this could be major sin or it could be a minor thing, but it doesn't make any difference if I want that so much I can't let go. And I can't define that for anyone else here. There's this book I'm reading. It's been a great blessing to read it. It's a, kind of a biography, but it's uh, Doyce D-O-I-S, Dois Rosser is the author. And as I've gotten to know him through his uh, book, it's been amazing to realize, how, how I was telling Bob yesterday, how much I've missed certain people who serve Christ in our culture I don't even know about, and they're, they're really heroes of the faith in their own world. And this fellow is certainly that. He's a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy businessman. He owns many different uh, In the automotive industry, he owns many uh, places like that. He's got other things under his uh, canopy of business and real estate to whatever. And uh, he goes to church out in the East Coast. He might be in heaven today because the book's a few years older. I don't know where he's at today. He would be a little older than me, I think. But uh, he uh, he tells a story in his book about, because he had accrued so much uh, finances and comfort, and yet this man has planted more churches than any other human being on the planet of, of Earth. He has planted churches all over the world with his money. And uh, then he has gone to many of those churches, and uh, uh, Charles Coulson has uh, raised this guy up as a real hero of the faith and so on. And uh, he talks about... Uh, After they had retired and they were uh, talking about what they're going to do with their life, he had a meeting with his wife and he said, uh, uh, my dear, he said, uh, God's blessed us so much. We've been able to use our resources to bless believers around the world. And that's been fantastic. But I feel like God wants us to do much more. And he said, uh, I don't want to sit here in my comfort zone or uh, whatever in my uh, cottage or my retirement and uh, just enjoy that and die. He says, "I I just feel like we need to serve Christ all the way to the end. So uh, they agreed to do that. He called up his family for a family meeting, called his kids in for a family meeting and said uh, they're all Christians and he called them in with their spouses. And he proceeded to just say to them, he said, uh, I know that you all know that uh, mom and I have put Christ first. We uh, love the ministry. We love what Christ has enabled us to do and they're all nodding and you're all uh, following Jesus, which we're thrilled about and we wouldn't change that for the world. And one of the kids said, okay, what do you want to say? What are you leading up to? And uh, he just said, "Uh, we've been blessed financially so much, and your mom and I are before God asking what we can do, and we honestly are wanting to feel you guys out to see how you're going to respond, but we would like to use all of our resources, what's left, all of our resources to give to the Lord. And we know that you have... uh, an understanding that we have money that could help you in the future, help your kids. Uh, We have set aside a couple of annuities for your kids, but we would like to take uh, all the money that we could live on and give it to Christ. As I was reading that, I was just thinking, you know, in our world today, we're all concerned about our future. We're all concerned about our retirement. We're all concerned about, will there be anything there for us? Can we make ends meet? I know saints in our church today are having a hard time with that right now. Uh, It's something we all think about. And here's a guy who has anything he wants, any time he wants. But he's willing to say, Lord, I'll give it all to you. Where are you at there? I'm very convicted. I I, I haven't had that talk in Maryland. I don't know what that means to me just to read that, but I'm so uh, reminded that we're we're so clutching onto just even the future. We're so clutching onto what what I can do to make it to the end and be comfortable and take care of us. And we're making all these plans and we're worrying about tomorrow's decisions. And as James just read that scripture this morning, it just reminds me that we're counting on something that isn't even there. We're counting on the mercy and grace of God to carry us tomorrow, but we're maybe not even included. Him in the plans. I, uh, I need God to really speak to me about that, don't you? And so when I think about uh, these verses, I, I say, Lord, you're first. Okay, if I really mean that, Lord, I don't want this world to form me into what it expects me to be. I don't want this world telling me how to live my life. I don't want this world dictating to me when I can say Jesus and when I can't. I don't want this world telling me when I can pray and when I can't. I don't want this world controlling those things in my life where I start to give away uh, areas of my life and and I start adopting myself or accommodating myself into the world's mindset. I don't want to do that, especially in this day. Do you? What's pulling at you? What's tugging at you? What are you fighting to not want to let go of as the Lord calls us to follow him? See, all that's wrapped up in this idea of presenting myself to him. It's not a small thing. It's a big thing, presenting myself to him. And then I don't want this world doing this. He says, well, he says, uh, I need to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. We all need that. Why? So that we might prove. Prove to who? So that we might prove to all those who are watching, who are evaluating, is Christ real? So that we can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do you get through life? Well, I, I yield myself to the God that I serve and love. I I, I proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I trust Him. Oh, do you really? Yes, I do. I trust Him with everything. Do you trust Him with everything? Because I don't know how you can do that. I mean, honestly, in the world we live in, man, you've got to hold on to what you can. You've got to store up for what you need to have for the future. You've got to take care of your kids, and there's a great weight on us. And I've got to be able to say, you know what? God is bigger than all of that. God can take care of me, and He can take care of my kids, and He can take care of the future. But does it belong to Him or not? Christian. That's what God's saying to me, and I have to answer that, and so do you. And it's not a drudgery. It goes back to the outflow of mercy and grace that has been showered on us, doesn't it? It's all his, and he is able to take care of me. This power of the gospel that Paul started out with in in chapter 1, it's the power of the gospel to salvation, but it's the power of God that works in our lives beyond just the day of salvation to the very day when I stand before him. His power is at work in my life. Is it or is it not, dear saints? And he's calling you and he's calling me to this uh, precept. Him first, trusting him. Don't trust the world. The world was here, we're here to be in the world, yes, we're not going to leave this world till he calls us, but don't let this world pull us in to its thinking, to where we submit ourselves to the world and not to him. He's Lord. And if he's Lord, he can do anything. And he can take care of me, just like he takes care of those folks who have nothing, and he takes care of them every day. That's amazing. We'll be sharing those stories tonight. I'm sharing, by the way, uh, with uh, Fred's life group and other another life groups coming in uh, but uh, you're all invited if you want to be here at 6.30 we'll show uh, uh, slides and so on 5.30 is a meal uh, but uh, you can't come to that unless you bring a snack or something I, should I say that or not <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say that but uh, around 6.30 we'll probably start that program so you're welcome to come Lord as we uh, just close this, your word we ask your blessing on it uh, may you work in our lives to such a degree that we have faith and trust in you. I pray that a person who does not know you might have the desire to call out to you today, give their lives to you Uh, without any understanding of what tomorrow holds. Lord, we can walk today in absolute confidence because of Jesus Christ. Would you reveal yourself to someone and would you pour your mercy on them today that they might see you? And Lord, I pray for those of us who call you by name that we would Have the mercy of your power over our lives to follow you. Give us grace and strength to remove those things that block us from walking in a right way, that we might please you in all that we do. For you are worthy. You are worthy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.